Welcome to this episode of Revolution and Ideology. In this episode, we are joined by Nyana, the host of the Curious Bodhi podcast, who reached out to Jared and I and wanted to have a conversation about the revolutionary potential of Buddhism. Um, as you know, we've done episodes on Taoism and Sufism and so on, and their relationship to anarchism and revolution and things like that. So we were excited to have this conversation. Um, Nyana lives in Portugal, so we were recording this episode over Skype. As a result, the audio quality isn't um, exactly as good as we would have wanted. It's not ideal, but it's it's good enough. So just bear with the audio um, issues, and we hope you enjoy this episode. It starts out with Yana sort of talking about her motivation for contacting us and what she really wants to hope hopes to accomplish uh, in the episode. Yeah, thanks for having me on, guys. Um, I reached out to you because I believe that the world is changing at a very, very fast pace, and we need a revolution, but a different kind of revolution, and I will get to that later, a spiritual revolution. So I thought that we could tie in our ideas of social structures and what we could do, maybe fire up some ideas for our audience on how to positively change the world together. Perfect. Sounds good. We're excited. So Jared's going to kick us off. Oh, I guess I should say we're going to break this into sort of three parts. Jared's going to give us a little bit of the historical context for Buddhism, its origination, and sort of Buddha's life. Then Yana's going to go over kind of the spiritual philosophy of Buddhism and her experience there. And then the third part will be us talking about the revolutionary potential of Buddhism today, sort of subjectivist revolution, and so on. So Jared's going to pick us up. Yeah, this is going to be relatively brief compared to maybe what some experts on Southeast uh, Asia would have to uh, contribute here. But I'm going to make it like as quickly as possible to kind of talk about the fact that we do consider the subjectivist uh, revolution of Buddha as like revolutionary, even for the era of, you know, like the 5th, 6th century BCE. So we pick up really to kind of set the table for what he was able to accomplish uh, in what is known as the Vedic Age. So it's between 1500 and 500 BCE. Um, and it's marked by the invasion, or some might even say migration, of a group of people called Aryans. And they basically kind of come down from the Caucasus Mountains. And they are, I mean, historians kind of debate like how militant they were, but we do know that like their warrior classes and stuff were like the most revered. So we know that they were a colonizing situ uh, uh, civilization. That, uh, that brought their ideals, their way of life into the Indian subcontinent as they kind of crossed into the Indus, Indus River and, uh, and, and went into the subcontinent. Um, they brought with them uh, language, both um, oral and written. That language eventually developed into what we know as Sanskrit, and Sanskrit um, was then, of course, uh, carved into stone, written on, on, on whatever, really, whatever they could find. And what was written is kind of what I want to focus on. It were they were stories. They were stories that basically celebrated the ideals of this Aryan colonizing civilization and some of the synthesis they made with perhaps surviving indigenous groups there, maybe from like the city states around Harappa or Mohenjo-daro and things along those lines. But those civilizations are older. I want to focus on the narratives because the narratives themselves. They serve as these things that we've talked about in our podcast before, ethically constitutive stories that basically rationalize a way of life. And unfortunately, parts of this way of life that were brought in by the Aryan migration were about subordination, exploitation, 
control over both material and ideal resources. These were all important parts um, of what the Aryan civilization brought. I don't necessarily know enough about what the civilizations that predate the Aryans had there, if they had these same types of exploitation or relationships of subordination and subjugation, but that's not necessarily relevant to what we're talking about today. I do want to focus on like what the Vedic age was about. And um, undoubtedly, it led to like growth. Um, it did, it led to a little bit of stability, we might argue, but like I said, the biggest part of this is it led to exploitation, and that exploitation was rationalized through narrative. These narratives, of course, are known as the Vedas themselves, hence we get the name the Vedic Age. Um, they were religious, they were philosophical, they were cultural, they were social, some even dealt with like economics, they dealt with, of course, proper ways to engage in relationships, whether those relationships are with superiors or subordinates, a little bit of filial piety there, or whether those relationships were marriage or relationships with your children, they basically kind of guided um, um, the proper way to conduct oneself. The problem here that we're running into is that those stories were written by a very specific, or written or told, let's be clear here, by a very specific storytelling class known as the Brahmin, and they were able to use those stories to, of course, lift themselves up above other groups. The Brahmin were able to then co-opt the material, co-opt the material leaders, i.e., princes, kings, or maybe better known as rajas, to work with them. So basically, you have these rajas that kind of control like the material world, um, and the Brahmin that kind of control the ideal and the narrative world, and they're working together to basically create class stratification. And that class stratification worked for them um, as they were able to accure, uh, procure either ideal or material benefits, depending on which class we're talking about. Right below them, needless to say, I already mentioned like kind of like a warrior-like mentality of this Aryan group would be the warrior-like class. They would be the next like highest revered in this system. And eventually what we're going to see develop over time because of these narratives that are in the Vedas is we're going to see a harder establishment of these classes so hard that eventually we'll just stop calling them class and we'll start calling them caste to where this is where you are going to be for the entirety of, of this particular life. We still see a little bit of circular philosophy in this like Brahmanic age in that like you can still improve upon your situation if you follow what the narratives tell you. These narratives provide you with some sort of like moral code of conduct um, framed as what we would now call like dharma. Um, but again, for that specific life, you would be stuck in this caste system. And if you followed your dharma the way you were told or the way you were socialized into through these stories, you could improve upon your situation later on in life. So real quickly, like these, these castes are, are split into like varna, these like strata. At the top, we've already mentioned the Raja and the Brahmin. Below them, the warriors or the Kshatriya. I can never pronounce it correctly, so excuse my pronunciation. Um, and on down the line, below them, we have the Vaisha, the Sudra. And at the very bottom, we have the Dalit or the Untouchables, which are a little bit later edition. I don't necessarily want to get into them, but I want to kind of read a quote here. And it's from one of my favorite articles that I assign in my courses. It's called uh, Buddha as a Revolutionary Force. And he talks about how the socialization through narrative um, basically kind of also works at the lower caste level and helps them stratify themselves. This is what Wadia had to say. He said, every caste, except, of course, the highest, the Brahmins, admits the superiority of some other caste, but it is scrupul scrupulously regards itself as a superior to some other caste, an excellent exemplification of the simultaneous working of the superiority and inferi inferiority complexes, so much so that even the most despised outcasts have adopted their own aristocracy in the form of the right-hand people and the left-hand people. 
each priding itself on its own superiority. Buddhism was far too democratic for such a society. And obviously, uh, Wadia here is, is going to basically make the argument that, uh, that Buddha's, Buddha's subjectivist way of thinking ultimately did attempt to upend that system. Now, whether it had a lasting effect or not is a debate we'll, we might get into a little bit later. But I want to stress that these castes become, and again, this is about a thousand-year process, become very entrenched in uh, the subcontinent. And basically, again, they do this. It's supported through narrative. And if the narrative is not good enough, there is enforcement through the warrior caste. So you feel kind of stuck in your situation. And that situation subordinates you. You, of course, feeling like you, um, um, you, the, 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 the figurative you, you also being um, above others, unless, of course, you're a Dalit caste, are looking for others to subordinate yourself. So you can kind of situate yourself in this sort of life. Right. And it's all rationalized idealistically for material purposes. So some of the stories that I think everyone's kind of uh, familiar with would be like the Rig Veda, which is the first Veda, the Upanishads. Um, I'm not going to go through like all of these um, different stories. But one of the things that that is important for us to understand is these stories don't just lift up the status of castes above oneself. They also um, deify um, really like the, the Brahmin because of their connectivity to the gods. Um, gods including, of course, Vishnu and Shiva um, and Brahma, all of these important gods that kind of reflect like this, um, I want to say metaphysical cosmic uh, um, strata that is used to gauge Dharma. And the important part of the Dharma is the Dharma through their judgment will affect one's karma and that karma is what dictates where someone will go in their next life. Um, I think that's probably enough there. I could probably go on and on about this, but I don't know that I really want to. There are a couple of key terms I want to throw in there that are established through these stories, these early Vedas. Samsara are the cycles of rebirth. Dharma, as I've already discussed, is the moral law and truth as framed by the Brahmin, co-opted by the Raja. Karma is the detail of one's moral energy and its stakes for the next life. Moksha is what everyone's trying to eventually um, achieve, and that would be release from the wheel of life. And of course, Brahmin, rather than Brahmin, is the understanding of ultimate reality. Like I said, um, I went through that relatively fast. I just flew through a thousand years of history, but I, I don't want to spend a lot of time on it. I want to get to Nyana here and, and her interpretation of Buddhism. But I do want to talk about a couple of the important stories that helped establish um, it further towards the end of this like Vedic age, and that would be the Ramayana um, and the Mahabharata, specifically the Mahabharata's most impactful sixth book. It's called the Bhagavad Gita. These are still wildly celebrated stories today, not just in India, but throughout the world. The Ramayana, of course, is the wonderful heroic story of Rama and his quest to save, of course, his queen Sita. Um, but here's the thing, as, as wonderful as these stories are, they definitely establish some uh, very hard lines regarding gender, regarding class, regarding means to achieve uh, one's goals. These lines, like I said, are the lines that kind of rationalize the caste system in a way, and some might even argue patriarchy and a whole host of other things. Same with the Bhagavad Gita. As wonderful it is that Lord Krishna comes down and gives Arjuna uh, the gift of yoga, there are still some very hard lines drawn that, again, unless you're like reading between the lines, you're not necessarily, you're just going to think it's a wonderful story um, of, of the coming of Krishna and, of course, the growth of Arjuna as a leader and all these other things. But if you're reading between the lines, you can see how this might socialize groups into being okay with this caste system of exploitation. Um, 
I probably I probably summarize those two stories way too quickly for um, uh, Indian literary critics, but I want to keep moving. The part I really want to get to is um, at some point, there are going to be, be people that begin to question this caste system, and Siddhartha is going to be one of those people. Um, Siddhartha comes around between, we estimate, between 563 and 483 uh, BCE. He is born to the uh, Shakya clan in Nepal, and he is of that warrior caste. Um, by then, the warriors are not doing as much like warring. Uh, society is pretty well established, and so it's kind of more a life of opulence. He lives in a palace, those types of things. Um, there was prophecy um, given to him as a baby that he was going to be something important. He was shielded in palaces because of this prophecy, so he wouldn't go out and maybe make any waves or changes. He ends up married at the age of 16. He bounces from the palace at the age of 29 um, after being tired of being kind of like stuck in this palace and not being able to see the world. So we can already see this kind of rebellious spirit there. After seeing the real world, though, it changes him. He becomes an ascetic. Um, why does he become ascetic after seeing the real world? Well, going back to this caste system and exploitation, subordination, and all the junk I just got done talking about, when he goes out there, he sees suffering, and that's the most important thing, he sees suffering. He sees suffering in the form of sickness and old age and poverty and all of these important things, and he needs to try and figure out a way to both cope internally with himself, and I would argue, this is my argument as well as it is, is our other source here, Wadia's argument, that he wants to challenge um, the conditions, actually, excuse me, he wants to challenge the system that has created these conditions itself. That's, again, that is my opinion, but that's kind of what we're arguing here. He receives this awakening after, of course, this life of asceticism. It takes place, of course, underneath the Bodhi tree um, after nearly dying of starvation, mind you. And then part of this is uh, finding this sort of middle path and this uh, dhyana, the state of mind. He creates this Dhammapada, which is called the path to truth. Jnana is going to talk much more about that. She's also going to talk about the Four Noble Truths that are established and the Eightfold Path. I don't want to necessarily steal her thunder there, but I do want to talk about real quickly why this is important for that time and place. Siddhartha's subjective revolution, what he sought to do without me getting into his philosophy, and is going to do that, is that he thought that if he could change the way individuals engage with both their material and metaphysical, i.e. their ideal reality, that he could provide them a quicker escape from the system. That is, again, this is kind of where we're coming from, um, both myself and Nick in this case, when I say where we're from, and this idea that he was attempting a subjective revolution. The argument is such that if one changes the way one thinks about the world, one can eventually change their material conditions. And if enough of those individuals change the way they think about the world as individuals, then the system itself must change to react to it. Uh, I probably won't talk a whole lot more of the rest of this episode, but to kind of like, I guess, drive the uh, the stake into this argument, um, Buddha and some other important teachers like Mahavira, who is the founder of Jainism, um, they made enough of a dent into this caste system, this Brahmanic caste system that I all too inadequately just described, enough to where this system needed to reinvent itself and we get the establishment of what is now known as Hinduism. And Hinduism is kind of that softer reaction to the changes that were taking place at that time. I don't necessarily want to go too much further into this because I do really feel like Nyan is going to now dig into the details that I glossed over. Not the historical details, but the details of, of what Buddhism was teaching, the subjectivist change. So um, with that, do either of you have questions before we kind of switch gears and go to Nyana? What was Buddha teaching and what, why, why does it create subjectivist change? No, I'm good. Let's go. Okay. Yeah, let's go. Cool. So I just want to 
start with a little story of mine. Um, I had a series of awakenings um, since around, ever since I was a child, I was interested in the deep questions of life, but I had a serious um, series of spiritual awakenings that kind of led me to overhaul my life and my lifestyle. So, so I used to be a big city girl. I was making a lot of money. I was doing all the right things in all the right places, but something was dissatisfying about that. And I followed my intuition to a place where I could relax. So I used to live in London and now I live in Portugal. It could be a long story, but I won't make it long, very short. Um, I now have time and space to really contemplate and um, follow the Dharma. And we'll go into what the Dharma is in a second. Um, but that's kind of my background. And we'll get into the heart, the juicy part of what is Buddhism really about. So I'll put this question to the audience and also you guys. It's not really a personal question. It's more of a practical question for you both, Nick and Jared. But do you believe that there's a way to lasting peace, happiness, and fulfillment? I don't know. I mean, I, 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 I guess. I don't know. I'm the, I'm the pessimist, I guess. Like, from the psychoanalytic perspective, I kind of feel like to desire is to be human, and I'm not sure those two things can be separate. So we've done episodes on like Taoism and Sufism in the past. I'm a little bit more well-connected to those two philosophies. And I think I'm more well-connected because I want to believe that there is that kind of path, right? Like, and those two philosophies speak a little bit more to me, at least personally than Buddhism. That's why I'm so glad that you're here and you're going to kind of help us walk, walk through Buddhism in this way. But I think one of the reasons they speak to me is I agree with Nick a little bit in that, that ideal that like, man, absolving oneself of desire or craving almost completely is quite difficult. Whereas some of these other philosophies allow for such through a, a more pure moral way, right? Like, like, like Sufism for listeners that don't know, go back and listen to our Sufism episode. It kind of goes into this idea of, of overcoming oneself, overcoming the ego, but doing so in a way um, that actually seeks to like achieve that, that path that Niana is talking about. So anyway, I'm done talking about that. I want Niana's now kind of response to us. Okay. Well, that's a good point because there are different paths for different people. One of my favorite things the Buddha ever said was there are 84,000 doors to enlightenment. So he was saying that you do not have to follow me. Just choose one that suits you. And I'll go over some of those paths later. But the question about happiness, no matter how you try to obtain it, if it works for you, it works for you. But... It would be a terrible trick of nature <laughs> to instill in every human being on the planet the desire for peace, happiness, prosperity, and something intangibly, mm, intangibly uh, joyous. We want, we actually want bliss or happiness, as I say. Words are tricky, but there you go. Um, so if you say, yes, there's a way to happiness, the Buddha showed how you can obtain it. And if you say no, then I would ask, what are you doing on the on the earth? If, if you don't want to be happy, what are you striving for? And that's just sort of a general practical question. But if we all want to be happy, 
or satisfied, uh, the Buddha laid out the Four Noble Truths. And these are the essence of Buddhism. So the first Noble Truth is that life is suffering. And the word suffering can be translated. In English, it's called suffering, but it's more like dissatisfactoriness or something is slipping through your fingers. The, the scenarios of life are always uh, shifting and changing and something comes and something comes and then it goes. So that's called dukkha in Pali. It's a very uh, important word. It's a dissatisfaction. And why do we have this dissatisfaction? That's a very important thing. It's because of the nature of life. Life is like a river. You can never step into the same stream twice. It's always changing. But when you try to solidify the river, you can never, actually you can't solidify the river because it's always changed. It's a process. So because of this change and because of our clinging to the changeful, we feel dissatisfied. We feel too bad. So life is suffering. And the second noble truth is life is suffering because of this sort of change. The third noble truth is there is a way out. We can get out of this suffering. And the fourth noble truth is you can take the eightfold path as one way to get out of suffering. Not the only way, but a way. So... The reason he laid out the Eightfold Path um, instead of something else is because he saw a need at the time, and maybe uh, Jared is familiar with this in the history of people and, and how, they, how they acted and reacted in history, but at his time, he realized that people were highly logical and needed a system of um, steps, stages, and numbers to follow. So... Everything in Buddhism is numbers, like the Four Noble Truths, the Eightfold Path. Mm -hmm. Everything is highly numbered. So the Eightfold Path starts with right view. And he realized that, okay, so the Eightfold Path starts with right view and goes right up to right samadhi, which is the And they go in order of sort of logical conclusion. You need the right view to be able to know where you're going. So you say, oh, I'm experiencing dukkha. I'm experiencing all these changes. I, I'm dissatisfied. What do I need to do? I need a, a view. I need to know where I'm going. And then he goes up to right samadhi, which is the highest. And actually, I'm not going to go over the Eightfold Path because I would like our listeners to study it themselves. Um, I don't want to be very rigid about the Eightfold Path in particular, because actually it's, um, today, I don't think it's the most relevant part of Buddhism or being a Buddhist per se. The essence of Buddhism beyond these very scriptural, uh, points is that it's about total liberation or what he called nirvana or nibbana in Pali. And this is actually the goal. So within Buddhism, although I say it is not a religion, 
it is more like a guide or a philosophy or um, an inspirational text. There are different types of Buddhism that people follow, such as Theravada, Mahayana, Tibetan, or Tantric. Tibetan and Tantric are two um, uh, Zen and Dogchen. So I follow more the Dogchen uh, way of liberation. And this kind of throws out the need for a logical set of steps and numbers, although some people do need that. And it goes straight into uh, the question of who am I and what, what needs to be liberated. And this is done through being aware. So it's a very expansive uh, process. It's not about reading. You don't have to read any book. Um, you just meditate. And um, you can do this in any way. You, you don't have to be sitting still, um, but you sort of expand your mind rather than contract it and hold down and concentrate. Um, before I go into, like, the most, what I think is the reality, like the, the bottom line of Buddhism through all of what I just said, I just want to say that there are many sister paths, like Jared noted. So Advaita Vedanta, um, Sufism, definitely, um, Sanatana Dharma, which is called Hinduism. Um, they're all looking for the same, 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 same exact thing, and that's liberation. It's just different ways of practicing. Um, <laughs> the bottom line in Buddhism, or what the Buddha was, who he was, and who we are, too, because we are the Buddha as well, um, is that he was a non-dualist. So all these paths are non-dual. Non-dual means not two. So there's no separation between me and Buddha. There's no separation between me and Jared or me and Nick or Nick and Jared or me and a flower or, or anything at all. Not necessarily pantheistic or panentheistic, but the way that the Buddha found that reality works is that we're all sort of a cosmic love suit. And that's, that's, the, that's what he found. When he was enlightened, as we all can be, he became one with everything and everyone and did not identify with his body-mind complex any longer. He was not a human being. There are suttas, um, where he mentions to some Brahmin, <laughs> uh, a number of students, but the most famous one, he mentions to a Brahmin who asked him, are you uh, a Deva? Are you, um, uh, are you a Dakini? Are, are you a God? What, what are you? Are you even a human being? And he said, no, I'm not a human being. I am awake. So this awakeness is the bottom line of Buddhism. No matter how you get there, Whatever path you take, whatever you do, you disidentify with your body-mind complex and all the attachments and all the, the cravings that you have because you, you see it from a different vantage point. It's like in Advaita Vedanta, they say one bird is watching another bird. It's just which bird are you? Are you the bird that's watching the other bird? Or are you the bird that's eating the, the, the bird's feet? So the... 
the actual essence of Buddhism, although we're languaging it, we're using language to get these uh, concepts across, is non-conceptual, non-dual, and is ever-expansive, which includes everything. And it's an opening of not just your mind, because the Buddha was very um, prominent about working on the mind, but about the heart, about opening to compassion and love. So that is my my ground, and I will open up the floor to you guys. So tie in that so back to what, what we just what talked we about regarding the history, regarding I think we can kind of see, and that was like a wonderful explanation of why this was revolutionary for the time period is he kind of like took the deification away from like this 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 pantheon of gods that, that everybody's kind of familiar with, the Vishnus and the Krishnas and so on and so forth. And he brought that like to himself and to the individuals that would eventually like follow the disciples and things along those lines. So right there, there is one piece of stratification kind of gone. And that, that kind of like little antidote you gave about when he gave the response to these Brahmin that were questioning about his essence, like his essence is his, it's no longer theirs to dictate. He's now dictating his essence. So he's ne not necessarily having to follow, um, um, essentially everything that he had been socialized into through these narratives. Even your critique of language, I think, was perfect here, because I kind of focused on that in the history, how Sanskrit had basically kind of codified at first orally and then in writing, like these narratives that, that, that created these systems that caused this, this suffering, for lack of a better term. And by making this more abstract and maybe taking some of the meaning away from the language, we're taking some meaning away from the system itself that led to this suffering through this system of caste. It's now up to the individual to dictate their relationship, not just with the material, but more importantly, the ideal and define who they are, rather than have these stories, Ramayanas, Bhagavad Gita's, um, whatever it is, define them. They are now defining themselves. And that in and of itself is kind of emblematic of liberation. Nick, what do you think? Yeah, the first thing I thought of when you brought up language was we discussed this in our episodes on Taoism, right? The Tao that can be named is not the eternal Tao, right? Talking about how when we put any of these concepts into language, regardless of which language it is, we can't possibly grasp the entirety of that concept. And even a step further removed, right? It's kind of like a telephone game where we're going from the original to like English in this case, right? So just that step is, again, we're losing meaning there. So you know, I think that's a really, really important point as well. And like Jerry just said, we can see how this very clearly was revolutionary at the time. Taking the power away from the external systems that existed that justified stratification, putting the focus on the individual and their right and their power to determine who and what they are at an internal individual level is clearly very powerful when you're living in a society that has a very rigid and case caste system that is hierarchical. And the love part I think is is key. He didn't have to do any of these things, right? He could have he could have seen the suffering when he left the palace, gone back to the palace and lived his life of opulence and never he could have just turned his back. But that love and compassion would not allow him to do so. So I think that's a key element that Nyana like added in there that that I actually had not necessarily fully considered, I don't think, which is interesting. So that, that was awesome. Yeah. I mean, his life was already pretty good. He was in the second highest cast. It wasn't going to get any worse for him, but he didn't let that happen. Yeah, this often happens with uh, people who become awakened. They have a hard time, speaking of language, 
they have a hard time talking afterwards because they don't know how to put their experiences into words. So the Buddha, he um, apparently couldn't speak for like 40 days after. He was just like so stunned. And how am I going to communicate this to people? And in Mahayana Buddhism, um, they have the concept of the Bodhisattva where one takes a vow to not end their own or to not liberate themselves until all beings become free. And that's what the Buddha did. Out of his love, he didn't, uh, you know, disassemble his body and leave the earth or what we call death. He had to figure out how to teach these people again and put what he wanted to say back into what people could understand. And just a follow-up, the second Thing I thought of when uh, Jared was talking about the the uh, ritual and the caste system, my interpretation, I'm not sure if it's the right one, but the Buddha, he often said, like, don't follow rituals for the sake of following rituals. You don't just for animals. You think you're going to appease some god because there's probably no proof of that and you're just wasting your time. So he, uh, are not necessarily atheists because they have a plethora of different realms in the wheel of Kampar called the Kala Chakra. They have devas, dakinis, asuras, uh, hungry ghosts. They have hell realms. It's it, it's like beyond the scene over there. But so like I don't think he was necessarily against. Um, rituals or, you know, he wasn't against Krishna or Shiva or that worship. It was just that it sort of distracted people from the real purpose of liberation because they will always find another reason to do that ritual and do it mechanically. You know what I mean? Well, yeah, I've heard him called more agnostic than atheist. Some some people do say atheist by taking some of that gravity away from like the pantheon of gods and all their various avatars that have come to earth to, to quote unquote help humanity or establish systems. But I, I like your interpretation better and I think a lot of other philosophers do as well. Like that that idea that he's an agnostic and that that kind of promotes this idea that there are multiple ways to deal with these rituals and engagements and relationships with the metaphysical and how that metaphysical um, materializes itself for the for the believer. I think that talk about which we didn't talk about in the in the history section ritual and his how ritual was such an ingrained fundamental part of the caste system and so why that's an important part of Buddha's teaching is like Yana was saying, it's not anti-ritual in the sense of like absolutely you don't ever do anything that could be potentially ritualistic, but ensuring that you're doing it for the right reasons, not because you've been indoctrinated and they're like oppressive and dictating your day-to-day -day life, but to ensure that you're doing the rituals that have your best interest in mind and that you're doing them in a way that is sort of, I don't use the term enlightened in this context, but you're aware of what you're doing and why you're doing them and how they serve your path to liberation and help others in that way as well. Yeah, and liberation from that, that cycle, that seems, I mean, you're trying to achieve that, that kind of, that, that break free. He calls it, of course, nirvana, but like that idea of creation, maturity, death, right? I mean, that's literally what we see, like Brahma, 
Vishnu, Shiva, like that's that's the cycle, and it's through the incarnation of those individuals as like deities that we see that perpetuated through like not just like the stories, but the rituals to those cycles. And I think a perfect real world example is I've talked to many people who like practice some form of Buddhism, whether it's just meditation or yoga or whatever, and like they meditate every day at this time for this amount of time, and if they miss one of those days, they like it just completely derails them, and they like are really hard on themselves, and like I try to tell them like if that's the case you're missing the point right it's not about the ritualization it's about your path I and mean, it's never going to be perfect especially in the society we live in today and so on and being so hard on yourself in that session or not going as long as you thought or whatever like that's not what it's about you know you can't you're still letting the rituals control your life yeah the concept of dharma dharma actually means sort of a rough translation the natural way so whether you're following Taoism or Sufism or Buddhism, it's about what is natural to you. You don't go against the grain. Go with the river. You know, mm-hmm. go with that that feeling of how to obtain liberation. Don't pressure yourself. Like me, I'm a terrible sit down meditator. I can't do it. I've never done it. Yet I'm 100% sure about what I'm doing. That's why I practice Dzogchen. It's like the open awareness style because I can do it when I'm gardening, walking, running, thinking, it doesn't matter where I am. So it's it's sort of about finding your ritual, but then when that works and wears off, then you don't need it anymore. It's gonna it's gonna work. You know? I think that changing of the definition of Dharma uh, through Buddhism is one of the important kind of like revelations as to how revolutionary it was as well because again like Dharma for that long period of time under the Brahmin was like a moral code and that moral code was there they wrote quote-unquote wrote or told or taught or socialized that code and that is kind of those are the vested stakes that they put for subordinates to make sure that they followed essentially what the Brahmin and the Rajas wanted them to do so by changing the definition of dharma, I think that in and of itself is true as well. Because it's not liberation. Because this was a tool that was used to subordinate for centuries. And then it wasn't. So anyway, like I guess we can kind of like now cross cross over. We understand that Buddhism was, was a revolutionary force at its time. And and I think one of the interesting things is that it was so revolutionary and inspired counter-revolution, as I've already mentioned, and Brahmanism eventually after a couple of empires and Ashoka and so on and so forth, evolved into kind of a softer form of itself, i.e. the various Hinduisms. And that's kind of revolutionary in and of itself, that it forced the dominant system to change. It was reactionary, but one of the interesting parts I think that a lot of people forget when they think of Buddhism is that it is Indian. I mean, it's Indian and it's now a minority philosophy in India, uh, minority to, of course, Hinduism, Islam, and, uh, and a host of other philosophies. However, Buddhism did travel up north into Tibet, into China, eventually into Southeast Asia, eventually into Korea, eventually across the Sea of Japan into Japan, and it became a, a relatively popular philosophy in all of those places, and I would argue partially because of its revolutionary spirit. So that spread is wildly important. And from all of these different places, it, of course, has now spread to, quote-unquote, the West, us here, 
and we want to talk about its revolutionary appeal through like like its spread reveals its revolutionary appeal. What does this revolutionary appeal mean for us in 2020 when we might not have um, as you know what I'll flat out say it we do we do have a caste system it might might not be outlined as cleanly in in some sort of like holy set of texts or anything along those lines but it's there we have a caste system we have inequality we have exploitation we have to be blunt we have suffering we have global suffering we have two million people living below the poverty to two billion people let me be very clear living below the poverty line we have um, um, nation states that are constantly at war with each other um, there is a war going on somewhere in the world 100 percent of the time right we have um, obviously right now if we want to date this episode a little bit we have the spread of a pandemic um, I mean people growing hungry we're literally destroying our environment like like what's moronic species? destroys its habitat like to the point where it will no longer be able to live there anymore like like there is clearly still suffering i could go on and on with all of the ills that are facing us on a global level but i guess i'll stop now i think our listeners probably kind of understand where we're going with this there are a lot of problems there is suffering how can buddhism potentially through a subjectivist revolution help set both ind first individuals to change and thus those individuals to eventually through their change, change the systems in place that have us on this wildly unsustainable trajectory. What do you think, everybody? Let's start with, I think, defining what a subjectivist revolution is. We've used that term many times at this point. Um, so the idea of subjectivist revolution is that through changing yourself, like in this case, we're talking about Buddhism specifically, that that can result in social societal level change also. And Jared talked about, I mean, the example of this of Buddhism itself and how Buddha changed himself to such an extent and then others followed suit that society at the time was forced to modify Hinduism, etc. So our question is, I think, what is the potential of Buddhism today in modern Western society to change to change society? And that's really, I think, the question that we want to answer. So I don't know who wants to take it from there. I, I think Yana should take it from there. No, I think everything starts in the individual because everybody believes they're an individual, right? I don't think anybody will say, I'm not an individual. Like, we all believe or think we're an individual. It's when we get way too individualistic, the problem because then we stop caring about other people, we stop caring about our environment, we stop caring about animals, and we stop caring about each other, and we can modify things. So, like when, <laughs> to give you an example, somebody who's um, a hardcore capitalist and all they're striving for is money their whole life and never takes time to self-reflect, may not ever question themselves as, even as an individual, what am I doing, where am I going, who am I? How am I affecting other people? So we may always have individuals who are quote unquote left out or who don't, don't care. That's like practical. But if you do care and you start to question your own narrative, what, you know, how you were brought up, what's acceptable socially, culturally, um, why you have shame, why you have guilt, why you have depression, why you're not happy, things like this. Um, then you can really open the way to start to expand 
expand your mind and start to answer your questions. And once you start to answer your questions, it may become apparent that Buddhism or following a way to liberation is a good start because in all of these ways to liberation, they all include compassion or uh, wishing goodwill to other beings. So, for example, um, we have loving kindness meditation. It's imagining um, you, you wish goodwill to everybody, not just your friends and your family, um, but your enemies or people who feel neutral or your neighborhood or your country or and eventually the whole world. Um, so you can really uh, work with the practice to instill it in yourself to motivate um, goodwill, compassion, and loving feelings towards other beings, which makes you a better individual at first, a more more kind, more gentle, more open, more um, more strategic in this world rather than reactive. And if we can get enough individuals to do that, even before they come to total liberation, I think that's like a really good start. What do you guys think? I think that first step obviously is key. I'm going to try and track everything you said because that was a lot of wonderful things. Like the first step was like question, right? Like just like just like Siddhartha did when he left the palace and saw things that did not align with his socialization. These things, I mean, he saw suffering in all of its manifestations, old age, sickness, etc., poverty. Um, and he questioned, he questioned the socialization. And I think that's what you just said, like kind of question again, we don't necessarily have one to three, like holy stories that kind of like, like that socialize us. It's a whole plethora, like so many. In fact, we, we have an episode on how many it's called narcotizing dysfunction, but they all kind of like rationalize our situation in the world, rationalize what's going on for the capitalist, rationalize why this person sees nothing but green. Um, they look at a tree and they don't see a tree. They see a uh, paper or a log or furniture or something like that. Right? Like that's, that's, they, they weren't born wanting that they've been socialized into it and we must get them to start questioning. We'll go Western philosophy for just a second, but I equate Buddha's leaving the palace to like Plato's allegory, of the cave where the prisoner leaves the cave. Right. So a little bit of Western philosophy mixed with Eastern philosophy here. But I see that. So I think that's like the first part is we need to wake up. You said awakening. We need to wake up. That would be the first thing that, that the Buddha can teach us is how to wake the fuck up. Right. Nick, what do you think? Yeah, I agree. I think that the concept of awakening can very clearly be applied to modern Western society to help us, perhaps differently, I think, than the Buddhist awakening, but to help us understand the ways that we are exploited and as a result why we are so unhappy i think if we don't understand the intricacies and the complexities of like why we're unhappy and the systems and structures in place that result in that that cause that if we don't do those things then we're never going to have any chance of succeeding in any kind of happiness whether on an individual or a social level and like if you look at history, Jared, you're the expert on this. Like how many revolutions have we had? Probably thousands all over the world. And I don't know, I'm not the expert on this, but my idea of a revolution, whether it's on a small scale or large scale, is more like <laughs> somehow rioting or, you know, getting people getting dirty with each other and, you know, it's me against the cops or this and that. And then uh, a group of people tries to make a change, and how many of those have we had? 
and how and on a larger scale that would be called war probably but we've had a lot and they've never worked so i'm thinking how to do this without doing that and that's where i think that uh, a compassionate revolution makes sense um because those they don't work it's like I'm sorry, it's just cycling. We do it over and over it's again. It's a rinse and repeat. Yeah, it's a rinse and repeat because the victors of the revolution um, didn't actually change the way they think about the world. That's the problem. They didn't challenge the way they think about the world. They just think they can do a better job fixing the system as it is. So it's like basically it's 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 patchwork maintenance, right? Or stopgap maintenance. And, and we're putting Band-Aids on broken bones and so on and so forth. That's what these revolutionaries do. And oftentimes... Nick and I have done this in a number of episodes. We've done, I mean, this is our, this is our podcast, literally, you know, revolution and ideology. We come to find that the victors uh, often end up looking like the, the, the people that they overthrew because they actually didn't subjectively change the way they think about the world. And that's why we're, we're really interested in trying to figure out, like, how do you do that? How might one do that? And now we'll get to, like, the next step here with Yana. You've kind of done that. You, you gave us a little bit of your bio before. You you changed, you moved, you've changed your philosophy, you've changed your lifestyle. Like that, that's part. So you, here's the thing, I guess I'll be a little bit more clear. In Yana's case, what I'm interpreting, and she's going to speak for herself in just a second, but like she woke up and then she changed. And I want to talk about like, so the awakening, you challenged those stories, the beliefs, all that stuff. And then you changed. Like, how did you do that? Like how, that's what we really want to know. You changed. Well, I realized at some point I was on um, the hamster wheels. You know, I was uh, working too much, too hard in a job I didn't, I didn't like. And why was I doing it? I had handfuls of money, but I wasn't happy, really. And I thought, at some point, I just stopped counting. And I was like, you know, F it, F it. Uh, I don't need this anymore. Stress, anxiety, um, living in the city. And I thought, what am I going to do now? Um, it's do I keep doing this my whole life? And I'm relatively young. I could, but I went with my intuitive guidance, which is really like how I live my life, um, which is from the inside out. It's not from the outside in. I've become more of like an inside out person, but I decided to use those piles of money to um, live a life like pretty much off grid, like, I'm building a house of shipping containers. I have a lovely plot of land. Um, I'm taking care of animals. And to give space to breathe and expand and reflect. And really, I am a hundred million times happier because I'm not working as a slave to somebody else because I had the idea in my head that I should do that or that's what somebody expects of me. I took my happiness into my own hands and it really, really worked. Like, if you feel, like, to anybody in this audience, if you feel the pull to do that, like, do something spontaneous for once. Like, use that guidance because it will get you, like, it, it will move you. It will move you. Just just take it and do something with it because it will work. And it's about peace as well. Like, I'm, um, Buddhism is also about eliminating the ego, so putting your ego down. Like, right now, I'm going to be totally blunt and honest. I don't have a job. My job is building my house and farming. And those were things I never thought I would do in my life. And uh, people might have a concept like she doesn't have a job and she's farming. That's the, the. But I don't care. 
like I, I don't give two f's about what anybody thinks anymore. It's about that's their their brains are in their cast. They they are cast. That's that that's why they're making those types of judgments. That they're the new dharma, the new moral code has been dictated to them, and that's why they feel justified in judging you for your um your your changes in your life. Could be. I don't know. I don't. I I just assume some people have a certain concept of of what this means, especially you know, uh, coming from where I came from and the mentality of people there. But that's a whole other subject, really. How did Buddhism help you with this transition? Like, are there any like specific like memories that you have of like how both with your study of the philosophy, um, how that helped with this whole transition that you made? Um, I'm always keeping in mind, always, and this is like almost on a constant basis, that everything is changing and slipping through my fingers. And that's so inspiring because um, it doesn't matter what happened five minutes ago or 10 years ago. Um, it's the past is the past. All we have is now and the future didn't arrive. So we can sort of plan for it, but don't get your your feathers ruffled about it so I'm just thinking about how life is a, like a, a process rather than an end point all the time and that really helps because you're not solidifying anything too much and getting too you know entangled with it you're sort of just relaxing and like oh today is today and that went like that and everything's pretty pretty sound so how did you discover Buddhism? You mentioned this kind of like break in your life where you realized you had this job and you lived in the city and you had money, but you like were not happy. Did you discover Buddhism and then arrive at that point? Or did you arrive at that point and then afterwards discover Buddhism? Well, actually, um, I discovered Advaita Vedanta first um, before Buddhism. And that was when I was opening my business in London. And I actually went into massive amounts of debt at that time. So I was literally suffering. I was uh, in, I, I, I didn't know where I would eat next. You know, it was that bad, um, very bad story. But it was through that, that I found the inspiration that there is more to life than just what my circumstances are at the moment. And they will change and I will get through it. So I found Advaita Vedanta. Um, which I'm not sure if my listeners are familiar, but it's it's a non-dual teaching, um, and that is about awareness as well. And again, I don't want to make the story really long. I want to make it short. So after finding Advaita Vedanta, um, everything went fine in life materially, better and better and better and better. But then the Advaita pill wore off because it's not um, a long-term. It's not something you can really work with. In Advaita, it's like answering the question, who am I? And that's pretty much it. And there's no real substance behind it. Like, we wouldn't talk about social change. We wouldn't talk about the material things of life. So Buddhism kind of like, I, I found Buddhism because it like married the material world with the spiritual world and something substantial, like long-term to work with. So, okay, I, I like that part because it, it kind of digs into this whole idea that you were asking these questions and it's part of like the, the, the philosophy that we teach in our courses as well as our podcast, like the ethically constitutive story. I brought it up, I don't know, at this point, 45 minutes ago or something as to 
how um, um, Brahmanism was rationalized, but that's very real. Those are questions that humans seek to answer and have been for thousands of years. Why am I here? Um, and, uh, and what am I doing or what happens in my future? Or what happens when I die? And I think one of the interesting things that you just brought up is rather than letting somebody else answer that for you, whether it was the Brahmin priests of thousands of years ago, as I was talking about, or whether it's our corporate storytellers right now telling us who we are and why we're here, you're now answering that question for yourself as a, a Buddhist. Now, I guess the question is, um, we talked about how like Buddha then taught this to other people and that's how social change came. And then there was like counter revolution through the Hinduism, through, through the creation of Hinduism, but all that's in the past. What about now? So we have, you know, 8 billion people and they're not all going to turn into Buddhists for sure. Some of them are very strong in their convictions, obviously, especially in the Abrahamic faiths. Uh, we know that. Um, but, uh, how can this still kind of be a way that we take the, your individual subjectivist revolution and I'm assuming a lot of your listeners and hopefully a lot of our listeners and then um, a whole host of other Buddhists around the world. How can we like how might there be a vision for something larger to kind of challenge that trajectory now of what I talked about, like environmental degradation and constant war flare and constant class stratification and people like, you know, living on 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 scraps around the world, if scraps, if, if they're lucky, you know, how do we how do we scale that up, I guess, is the question. Is there a way to scale that up? What do you think? I mean, this is an important question, right? And I think it's like the chicken or the egg type question, right? Do a bunch of individuals going through subjective revolutions on their own result in social change? Or does society change and that results in people seeking out and experiencing this change? I mean, I think the answer is it has to be at the same time, right? It's this reflexive relationship where as people get more miserable, unfortunately, they'll be more likely to seek out alternative paths. And as more people become, quote unquote, enlightened or awoken or followers of Buddhism or any other kind of sort of liberation, spiritual belief, like genuinely, um, I think it will begin to have more social impact and so on. So I don't know if there's like a one size fits all, how do we scale this? I think it's a really complex sort of reflexive social and individual relationship. It is complex because not everybody's going to um, follow the same path. That's a given. Like, I don't think there was ever a time when people all thought the same or all felt the same. It's impossible. Um, I think that until we can realize what we're striving for as human beings, like really what makes us happy, what makes us unhappy, which is like the pertinent question. Um, as long as you're not the violent type, like people think that violence will bring them happiness. Like I'm talking about, you know, people who are on the battlefield or, or quote unquote terrorists or people who don't really care about life itself, but people who do care about life, if they try to figure out what makes them and others unhappy, it's like a really good start. And this idea of compassion that really works, like once you follow a path that starts to tamp uh, your ego and realize when you're getting, um, you know, you want to get your way or you want life to go your way, even if there is war, even if there is um, like uh, food insecurity, even if there is, terrible um, 
systems of government and things like this, as long as we care about other people and we even care about our enemies, that's like mind blowing because I'm still working on that one. What is an enemy? You know, who's the enemy? Things like this. But as long as we are compassionate for others, that's like a great way to start. I think it's just a baby step though before we can understand what liberated beings are like the Buddha or if somebody's liberated, which would be great and they're listening to this, what you think. But before that total liberation where you're okay with everything as it is, you have to start to be okay with other people, other social systems and sort of like change your viewpoint, walk in somebody else's shoes a little bit. You know what I mean? Yeah, no, I think, and I think one of the most powerful thing is like, aside from like, in addition to being okay with like other people, other ways of life, other systems, other beliefs, other ideals, whatever it might be, I think one of the more powerful things that you've kind of like talked about regarding like a potential subjectivist revolution is absolving yourself of like the control of the system that you're within. So that system rests, it's, it's obviously built like a pyramid. We talk about it uh, quite often. And if that pyramid has no base to rest upon, i.e. you exit that pyramid, whatever that exit looks like, whether that exit is idealistically or if it's actually materially like you clearly have done both, um, that's one way that you can kind of like, that, that's how that pyramid crumbles, for lack of a better term, is, is, is merely taking that base out. Now, can we get enough individuals to willingly exit given that we given that socialization our stories our vedic age right now for lack of a better term to go back to the history i was teaching is so strong it's so entrenched we're literally I'm, we're doing it right now we're literally glued to a screen uh, and although we're talking to each other oftentimes the screen is the vehicle of socialization and it is pumping into our brains um the very powerful narratives the modern day bhagavad gita or the modern day ramayana or the in, in certain cases the modern day bible or the modern day quran or the modern day whatever it is whatever that socialization is it's being pumped into us is there a way i mean i guess the buddhist would say that you have to kind of accept that and and make peace with that but it does make scaling up social change quite difficult if i can be critical for just a second here like it it it, it makes it actually extremely difficult because you're essentially okay with the fact that other people um, believe differently, but those beliefs, those very specific beliefs they or may they may have, are beliefs that directly contradict the end goal that we're trying to achieve, which is again altering this wildly unsustainable trajectory that we're on. So, to be blunt, how one might be okay with, let's say, like like a capitalist, like 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 the, the Koch brothers or the Rockefellers, who are outwardly just not good quality people that are that have us on a on a trajectory that's sustainable can we be okay with that or do we need to like scale up and like somehow find a way to challenge them and would buddhism provide us any sort of vehicle for like direct confrontation or challenge to those individuals you know what that's funny you mentioned those that were some because... straw men i just pulled down the Koch brothers and rockefellers i'm sure there's worse but like whatever those were straw men that popped in my mind so but it, it's good you brought that up because i think about this often um like right now there's an obvious system of um chaos and trying to control people that's going on with this whole pandemic and really we the people who you know 
people who are in the world, like 99% of people versus 1% of people are the ones who have the power. They just don't believe they do. They believe somebody else has the power. They're not looking inside. They're looking outside for someone to blame. So they blame the government. They blame the their children. They, bl they blame anyone or anything rather than taking responsibility for why they feel the way they do. And once we take our, like, is Buddhism or any spiritual path is very, it should be empowering, empowering the individual. Like, you have your power. Stand in your power. If something doesn't feel right to you, don't keep doing it. Like, stand in your power. And that's like a good power. I'm not talking about, you know, power over other people. Right. But if enough people stand in their power, which is 99% of us, then it, magic will happen. And that's quite possible, like, if you look at it. <laughs> the one thing that makes it difficult is like that 99% argument. And, and it was in one of the quotes I read earlier from Wadia is that like going back to our pyramid and the cast that we're in is we don't understand that the casts are all part of that 99%, that the casts are fractured so much that we see each other as competition so that unification never takes place, right? Like, and for some parts of this system, it's easier for them to maybe engage in that than others, right? Like, so if you happen to be, I don't know, let's say in a sweatshop in Southeast Asia somewhere, maybe like Bangladesh or something like that, like in that specific case, I would argue that the system very is very much keeping those people in change and that no matter how much ideological revolution takes place in their brains, that's not going to change their material plight because there are so many limitations and there is so little access to anything outside of that. That So I guess like can Buddhism help in, 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 in something in a case like that? Or can Buddhism help in a case where, I don't know, United States is fighting another war of aggression somewhere in the world and dropping uh, Moabs, what are the mother of all bombs on some, on, on groups of people. Like, like what, what do you, right now in, in, in Azerbaijan and Armenia, right? The conflict going on right there, like this is over some inconsequential territory and people are being used essentially as pawns. I don't know. I guess where I'm struggling right now is where does the subjectivist revolution come in to alleviate those types of issues? And I just, and that, that, and that, that's where I'm like asking this question. I don't know. I don't know. Well, that's interesting because the person who needs alleviation, it's obviously not you or me. Yes. Or yes. It's somebody in Azerbaijan, maybe, or anywhere. And if they feel like they need alleviation, they need to get it themselves. You know what I mean? Like, and I don't mean that in like a derogatory way. I just mean like, no matter your circumstances, the poorest person, the, the person who's struggling the most still has human power. They have, they're a human being. They have the power to change their circumstances. And I don't mean that like in sort of, um, you know, pull yourself up by the bootstraps. I don't mean like that. I mean, they have a way to see and be inspired by something that could change them rather than being, um, it's hard to say this without saying the wrong thing because I don't want to give the wrong projection. Like for example, when I was in my poverty situation, that's what it was. I had to just switch my brain. I, my, my material circumstances didn't change. I switched what was going on inside. You know what I mean? So, the people who are in dire circumstances, very, very bad. I wish I could help every single one of them. But if there's a chance you can try to get some light, 
then your situation could possibly change. I think one of the benefits that Buddhism offers is, I mean, the very first thing is, like you said, you use the term light, right? Finding some kind of internal happiness in dire circumstances, right? So let's use modern Western capitalism as an example, right? The business person that is making a lot of money but working 70 hours a week is absolutely miserable. I mean, the first step is, if they want to explore this path, is to try meditation, right? And try to explore this way of thinking and so on to help them find, begin to explore like their own individual power and some kind of happiness that they can create within themselves that will then give them a different frame with which to view the world in which they exist. And then potentially as like a second or third or fourth or fifth or whatever step, from there they can begin to try to change the system. I don't think that's required to change the system, but it certainly doesn't hurt in any capacity. So are we saying that Buddhism for the modern era needs to be applied from the top down? But you're saying like the one percent needs to become Buddhist? Yeah. So the it, it, or the West or in general, because 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 as I continue to get further, and now I'm getting a little bit pessimistic, if I'm honest with you, in this like podcast right now, um, I'm trying to think of like how that 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 immigrant in a cage at the border between the United States and Mexico can merely think their way out of their suffering. No, I actually fully agree with that. I think that it like, needs to come from we need in a global context. Right, it's the global one percent that needs to look in the mirror and change the way that they view the world. Right, and it's their responsibility and our responsibility as members of that class to change our own system because we have to be honest that it is our own system, our own way of living that is resulting in the conflict around the globe. And it's you use like the workshop work in Bangladesh. The only reason that those material material circumstances exist is because of the clothing that we wear and our absolute refusal to confront our way of life. And the system in which we live, right, is creating those oppressive and exploitative material conditions in their society. So I, I think you're absolutely right. Like it's up to us. Yeah. Not that they couldn't also benefit from Buddhism, but if we're talking about like material change globally, yeah, it, we're the ones that have to look in the mirror first. Yeah, like if you have the capacity to do it, then do it. But I'm sure, like as you heard before, there's some quote about it or something. But like. If you don't have enough to eat, how are you going to do something like make artwork? You know, you have to have the basics met first before you can do any. So if you have some basics, then try to work with the basics. If you don't and you can't, then nobody's blaming you. But I do agree that we need to take some responsibility, like a lot, actually, of responsibility for each other. That's why we're here, to take responsibility for each other. Like, we talk about this all the time when we're doing the history of different revolutions and, like, revolutionary theory and so forth. Like, the revolution never comes from the most oppressed in a society. Like, Jerry and I say just in, like, common terms that you, you can't revolt when you literally are starving in the street. Like, that's not a thing. And so on the global scale, like, clearly we cannot expect the most oppressed on Earth to lead the revolution for their own freedom like that that can't be a thing it's got to come from those of us that are in some way either directly or indirectly privileged. yeah 100 privileged and it's our way of lives that is causing
the oppression like around the globe. Like that has to happen. So to come back to the history of that Siddhartha, he's in the second highest caste. He saw the suffering. The people that suffered didn't revolt. He started the revolution for them, the subjectivist revolution. He humbled himself, overcame his sense of self, developed this compassion for liberation again for like others as well as himself. But like it came with his privilege. He was a privileged individual. Siddhartha was privileged, right? Like we do know that. Like he was privileged, but he used that privilege for good. Um, I mean, I think we can kind of see that. I, I think maybe in the modern age there would be, we're kind of counting on, like he had this awakening by seeing suffering because of his circumstance of leaving the palace. I don't know that our wealthiest corporate overlords or corrupt politicians, I think they're well aware of the problems and are ignoring them. So I don't know how we can force their awakening, but that's, I guess that's for another episode. Well, I would challenge you even further that it is, it's not even the corporate like overlords. I think it's many people in the West are aware of the suffering. I think we oftentimes put far too much stake in the theory that like people don't know what's going on and that's why they don't do anything. I absolutely do not agree. I think that the vast majority of people absolutely know that there's a sweatshop worker somewhere on the other side of the globe that made their clothing and they somehow have rationalized to themselves that they either deserve that or that's okay or all of the above in some way, like in their mind that they know yet, right? This is like Zizek's famous thing, right? It used to be where like you knew not what you did. Now it's in like modern ideological society. It's we all know what we're doing, yet we continue to keep doing it because we are powerless to stop. I think if we're going to try to contextualize this sort of in the Buddhist philosophy, like how can we use Buddhism to sort of change the way that we view the world, not to become aware of the suffering. We're already aware of the suffering that goes on to facilitate our lifestyle. How do we frame that in a different way in internally within ourselves, both mentally and like you said, the importance of the heart and compassion? I think compassion is the thing that is lacking. We know that that Bangladesh sweatshop worker is making our shirts, but we are so far removed from that that we are incapable of having compassion for that other human being because they're ge geographically so far removed from us. They are ideologically, at least we believe, like different from us. Like we go through, I think, in our minds, this like pseudo speciation of dehumanizing them, that they like, don't even exist as a human being. They're sort of like, sweatshops are like abstract for most people, right? They've never been there. They don't know really what they look like. They might look at pictures online or something, but they know that they exist, but they, they lack passion for those circumstances. And I think that's really the big sort of hurdle that perhaps Buddhism could play some role in. Yeah, we are like a global population now. What goes from one place can get around the world really fast. Information, you know, technology. We have all the tools to know exactly what's going on. Um, so we are more aware than ever. Um, but what I think is wrong is the... I, I always am uh, skeptical of our technological revolution and where we're going with AI and this sort of thing because it dehumanizes ourselves and dehumanizes um, the human species. Uh, we are human. We're not artificial intelligence. So this keeps the, um, the, though we can be aware through the internet where we get our information that their sweatshops exist, because most people get their information this way. They've never been there. They never see these people. We need to create humanization of the human species again. We can't 
get information online and think we know everything and not do anything. We need to feel that we are all intimately interconnected. Any food that you just ate today, somebody worked really, really hard to make that happen. Like really, really hard. And everybody eats. So it's kind of like you cannot separate anyone or anything, no matter where they are on the globe. We need to start humanizing people again. Feel what they're feeling. Zara brought up earlier narcotizing dysfunction. And I think that's really, really important here because I too am skeptical of technology in certain aspects because I think that we are now so informed as a result of technology that oftentimes we're either completely overwhelmed and we don't know what to do, or we substitute that information for action. And so we think that because we know that like we've actually done something about it, but that's obviously not true. Yeah, I mean, yeah, the whole like trope of clickivism and like, yeah, wokeness and so on. We substitute like, oh, I like this Facebook post or sign this online petition or like whatever. We substitute that for like real world action. Interconnectivity, intersectionality, all those types of things that are like kind of catch words. But I do think like they get missed, right? Like we work with people that are trying to make positive social change uh, locally or nationally or whatever, but there's always some sort of like qualifier there. It's local change that matters or it's national change that matters or we'll focus on issue X, Y, or Z rather than seeing the global. No one ever looks at like the global connectivity. And I think that's kind of what's missing, right? Like we'll have people that are advocating for um, issue X, Y, or Z and I bring up I issue A, B, or C and all of a sudden we're in disagreement even though generally we will kind of want the same things because I think this issue A, B, or C is more important than issue X, Y, or Z and they think vice versa even though in both of our minds we're trying to make the world a quote-unquote better place I think Buddhism can provide us some of that like more macro like global scale that interconnectivity I often equate that interconnectivity like that with, with Turtle Island and now I'm going to a completely different continent now but like the indigenous wisdom of, of First Nations here in the Americas and how they understood that. Without They weren't Buddhist by any stretch of the imagination, but the, this philosophy, their, most of their philosophies already revealed this interconnectivity that is apparent, right? Um, and I think that's, that's the part that's kind of missing now. Yeah, I, I, we could go on and on. Episodes probably getting a little bit long in tooth, but there's definitely revolutionary potential here. I like that because I think that that's really, really key, this idea of inter- both the local community and globally, and even with non-human species and so on, the environment and etc. I think that that's one of the hugest detriments to making social change and to our own mental health is like we view ourselves as an island, right? Like I am an individual and I have to do all of these things on my own and like so on. I'm not for my own self-interest. And I think that Buddhism can play a role in, even though it focus is finding like internal individual happiness it's done in such a way that generates compassion for all other i don't even say living beings because i think that the environment and so on right like we see like this sort of universal connection with all other aspects of the world so buddhism's liberation from caste can be applied here as well. In this case, our castes are national, or our castes are local, or our castes are species-based. Do not get me started on all the, all the people that are trying to advocate for like people of different parts of the community, and then they're like, oh, they end up at like Carl Jr. like or KFC. Like, are you kidding me? Like, that's but whatever. That's a whole different different topic. Anyway, um, but yeah, like like that's 
that hypocrisy or what I want to call hypocrisy, people that are nicer might call it more of a cognitive dissonance, but whatever you want to call it, like that is, that's caste based and that caste is socialized. We're socialized into believing in that caste, in this case, species or speciesism for lack of a better term, like that, that's something that Buddhism can help us like overcome, right? Like that interconnectivity, like taking a break, like de disconnecting for just a little bit from like the, 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 the technological world so that we can reconnect with the real world, the material world, or even the spiritual world. I think that's important. I mean, I think we ought to be honest that the most impending catastrophe that is the biggest issue right now is climate change, right? I mean, right. we're just completely destroying the environment. So if Buddhism can help people feel more connected to the natural world and have a better grasp on what it means to be part of like you know the cycle of life right <laughs> like, I mean, that's that's important because that very clearly is like lacking we need this like huge shift in the way that people think to make them realize that what the global ecosystem is like and how it is suffering as a result of our way of being if buddhism can help there like yeah i'm all for it all right well um i don't know that we came to any like specific conclusions but there is definitely Revolutionary potential in Buddhism. Yeah, I mean, I would just challenge people to, like, it literally is, like, the least groundbreaking thing that you can do, right? It doesn't, you don't have to, like, you don't have to drastically change your life or sell your car, or, like, do anything. Literally, you can find there are so many resources for, like, guided meditation out there. You don't have to be an expert on the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Path and, like, read Siddhartha and, like, do all, like, understand all of Indian history. Like, all of that is completely unnecessary. Literally, like the first step is just to find, go on YouTube or a podcast or wherever and find meditation. That's it. I mean, start and with. You don't need exotic yoga pants to go to an exotic yoga studio or any of those things because those perpetuate the problem. I know. You exactly. want to stress that so much. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 100%. So I would challenge our listeners to just, I mean, it seems like if you're like never been exposed to stuff like this, right? It seems like so new agey and like whatever. But the whole point is that like anyone can this right you don't have to buy a book you don't have to like do this all of this is necessary there's not like this language you have to know or anything to practice it you literally can just start at any time find a five-minute meditation out there and just try it and see what happens i also want to stress that like it's not something that you do one time and you're like oh my god i'm enlightened like my life has changed and it's it's over and like i am now this like enlightened being and the world has changed like that's not the case right it's like anything else where you have to practice it and over and over and over again to sort of, especially in the Western world, right? Learn what it's like to have a quiet mind and like get used to that. And that really takes a lot of practice, especially we're talking about technology and like, we are so just inundated with notifications and just nonstop streams of information that is really, really challenging in the Western world to get to a point of like mindfulness and being aware of just the outside world how you're feeling in your breath and like whatever practice you choose to follow, like it takes practice. But what I say for our listeners is like, just try it, right? You literally have nothing to lose. And before we get a comment on YouTube that we are speaking from a point of privilege to other privileged people, we actually know that and that's why we're speaking to them. Again, just like we said, we don't expect the Bangladesh Bangladeshi sweatshop worker to stop what they're doing to meditate um, because the reason they're in the state they're in is because of us. So. We understand that part right there. And that's why we're actually having this conversation. So before we close out, I want Niana, like what, what do you think? What do you think of what we just got done talking about? 
Um, I think that uh, it's really important for people to stop listening to fear before they know what's going to happen. If you want to change something in you, change something in you if you have the capacity to do that. Um, and about technology, try a little bit to get off your phone, get into nature, take a walk, and notice what's around you. It's really important um, if we're talking about mindfulness. To be mindful of what you're doing, how you're doing it, and who is around you. Like giving a simple smile to people really makes you feel good and makes them feel good. An acknowledgement of the human being. We are in this body. We are not machines. We are not robots. And giving that, no matter who it is, like that you pass on the street or that you work with or whether you know them or not, it just if you can extend a little bit to them without fear, that would be like a great place to start if you want to start um, practicing before even meditation. Just kind of become aware of what you're thinking, what you're doing, and in your surroundings, and you'll, you'll start to figure it out. Awesome. All right. So, Nyana, why don't you tell our listeners where they can find you and your So, I'm on CuriousBodyPodcast.com. And you can find my episodes on Spotify, iTunes, and like a number of other smaller platforms. They're all on my website. I do not have social media. I do not have YouTube, and that is on purpose. So just you can find us at revolutionandideology.com. Um, like Yana, we're on basically every podcast platform out there. Um, but unlike her, we do have social media. You can find us on Twitter at Rev and Ideology. We also have a YouTube channel. So just go on, you can Google or go on YouTube and do Revolution and Ideology. And we have videos up there of our episodes and other videos we make for other purposes. Uh, but yeah, thanks for listening. I'm Nick. Jared. Yana. Talk to you later. Thanks, guys.